It's Monday, May 21st, and this is The Daily Dot. Another community is in mourning after a student entered Santa Fe High School in Texas and killed 10 and injured 13. 17-year-old Demetrius Pogorchis stormed the high school armed with a shotgun and a 38 caliber revolver. But as a gun debate continues to rage on, what are schools doing to help protect students in situations like this? School safety has turned into a multi-billion dollar industry, and we will let you know how the safest school in America protects its students. Also, after a weekend tweet storm by the president about the ongoing Russia investigation, we find out that he will be instructing the Justice Department to probe whether the FBI surveilled his campaign for political purposes. We will speak to Reuters political reporter Ginger Gibson to find out more about an FBI informant interacting with some Trump campaign advisors. Finally, we will be joined by Usha Lee McFarling, a science reporter for Stat News, about an interesting story about transferring the memories of one animal to another. In this case, the memory of one snail was implanted into another. It might change everything we know about memory, but don't expect for this to work on humans just yet. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Another community is mourning the loss of students and teachers and remains confused as to how to stop the latest scourge of school shootings. After a 30-minute ordeal, Santa Fe high school shooter Demetrius Pogorchis surrendered to police. He is only 17 years old. He killed 10 people and injured 13. He was armed with a shotgun and a 38 caliber revolver that he took from his father. During first period art class, Pogorchis stormed the art complex made up of four rooms and connected by hallways and began to shoot students and teachers. Reports say that a school officer did engage him but was shot in the arm. He also exchanged gunfire with other officers before giving up. Reports also say that he moved from room to room, taunting students, and shot kids hiding in a supply closet after yelling, surprise. Some say that he was quiet and unassuming and didn't raise any red flags. Students knew him from the JV football team and a member of a dance squad at a local Greek Orthodox church. Officials say Pogorchis wrote about planning the attack in journals, his computer, and his phone. Two bombs were also found at the school, but were non-functional and did not detonate. They found more at his home. As usual, a gun debate rages after a school shooting, but what else are schools doing to improve safety? School safety has turned into a $2.7 billion a year industry. Companies are pitching schools a range of tools, instant background checks for visitors, social media monitoring software to detect troubled students, gunshot detection sensors, and ID cards equipped with panic buttons. The trouble is that these things are expensive and aren't always proven to work. It's hard to tell what works because every situation is different and very little study has been done on what is most effective. One school in Indiana, which has been called the safest school in America, implemented a $400,000 active shooter defense system. Southwestern High School in Shelbyville, Indiana, has a system where teachers wear emergency fobs which set off school-wide alarms and notify local law enforcement. Yeah, we all wear a fob in case there's a security breach. We can push this button and the entire alarm system goes off in the school. The school also has doors that lock automatically and which are also bulletproof. Other devices allow for teachers to tell law enforcement the classroom is safe or need medical attention. Finally, 
The hallways are equipped with hot zones, which shoot smoke out of cannons to distract and limit the visibility of a potential shooter. He's walking towards exit 14. I'm going to launch the hot zone. The school's secret weapon called hot zones, exploding smoke cannons hidden in the ceiling. Cops can deploy them in an instant. But why aren't all schools implementing such security precautions? My producer Miranda Moreno joins me for more on this. So Miranda, this one school, it's being called the safest school in America. I've read other reports, other schools taking these same type of things. They have have all this stuff implemented. It's never really had a case to work. There's never been an active shooter at these type of schools. But why aren't other schools implementing things like this? Well, right off the bat, Oscar, it's very expensive. When you hear a $400,000 price tag for the school in Shelbyville, you think, well, that's pretty reasonable. And that's not the case. Shelbyville School only holds a little bit more than 300 students, and that's just not— Oh, that's a tiny school. It's not reasonable. To compare, the largest school in Indiana, because that's our base model here, is a, a million-square-foot school and called Carmel High School. It would cost millions of dollars to retrofit the school to be like this. So it's not really feasible for a lot of schools to do this. I know uh, some schools get grants and matching funds to do some of this stuff. The school in Shelbyville, the prototype school, if you will, they were able to get grants, donation match, and then the tech company who installed the whole system paid the difference. And that's where you make your money. And they're not going to do that for every school in Indiana, even that town or the country. What else stands in the way of putting this in a lot of schools? It's really complicated. The problem with the schools is that it takes too long for someone who's inside the school to call police and for the police to react and show up, right? And they say that at the school, with the prototype school with the panic buttons, it did dramatically reduce police response time, especially when you think of all the smoke and the cannons. But they say they don't recommend those smoke blasters because, so say that there is a shooter and they're disoriented. Well, guess what? It also is going to disorient police officers who are trying to respond. Right. Limit their visibility when they're trying to engage I know one of the other, it's not in this school, but I know one of the other systems that was kind of interesting, certain security groups are providing schools with digital grids of the school. Yeah. So they can divide the school up easily. So when cops do get there, they say, you know, it's in grid C or something like that, where they can familiarize themselves very quickly with it and know where to go, where to uh, engage the shooters. That's exactly right. And they said that that plan only cost about $1,800 just to get some kind of architect or designer to draw a digital blueprint Mm -hmm. so the cops can just immediately know where to go. And that's just for quick action. What else do we have? It's not proven. The first step in identifying these school shooter cases is knowing the students. So you can have all the security measures in the world, but that's not going to stop someone who's steadfast going to do this. Right. Uh, You know, in this case, it was a student who goes to the school, he's likely to be there anyways. He had a big trench coat on, which he always wore, as reports said, but that's how he hid the guns in there. But he's supposed to be at school, so how do we know it's going to work? They say these impressive interventions can do a lot, but it's no match for sitting down, speaking to students who may be trouble- problematic. Uh, and that there are other options. So they like the expanding on that. They want good security, but they don't want their schools to be like a prison. So what can they do? And they say manage visitors, uh, employ more armed guards, that sort of thing. Right. And there was guards in this case. One of the officers did engage him right away. He got shot in the arm. The students don't want to feel like they're in a prison. They don't want to feel trapped in there also. Really sad reports of some of the witnesses said, I don't ever want to be in those rooms again. I don't ever want to be near there because of the memories, the sad, the bad memories of it. But also beyond that, officers patrolling or crazy smoke detectors and things like that, it just puts a, a damper on the ex- whole experience of going to school and trying to learn and trying to grow and be happy. It's, it's a really tough situation. 
every situation is a little different. So who's to say that all of these security measures would help in any way? Experts do call for a comprehensive approach, a lot of these security measures, things that detect social media so you can identify problem students. And as you were saying, Miranda, beyond that, counselors and things like that to help those kids that look to be having a problem. And in this case, the student, Dimitri Pogorchis, they said he didn't raise any red flags. So it's a very tough situation. The Justice Department, the FBI, even the White House has said that revealing information about this individual could uh, compromise uh, people's lives. It could uh, betray a relationship with our allies. Uh, It could compromise the investigation. And the president's response and Chairman Nunes, uh, Jordan and Gowdy and others is bring it on. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson. She's a political reporter for Reuters. So the big news of the weekend, President Trump as he tends to do over the, on Sunday, early Sunday mornings, goes on a tweet storm, railing against the Mueller probe again. But this time he said he's going to call for the Justice Department to probe whether the FBI surveilled his campaign for political purposes. And this comes after the New York Times had a story that an FBI informant made contact with George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. What is he talking about? There's a lot going on here, so I can try to break it down a little bit for you. Donald Trump learned this week, as did America, that there was an FBI informant who was talking to his campaign. He sort of made it sound at one point like they had installed an informant in his campaign. But what we now understand was there was a professor, perhaps, previously had been an FBI or CIA informant who uh, was already uh, in contact with both the intelligence agencies and the Trump campaign, reached out to the Trump campaign on behalf of these agencies to see if he could get a bite. And it looked like he might have gotten that bite. Donald Trump is suggesting that he was steered in the direction of his campaign for political reasons. The FBI seems to be suggesting that he was there to see if he dangled something that was uh, not kosher in front of the Trump campaign, if they would take that bite. Right. And the reports were that nothing really came of those meetings. They said that he was an American, uh, like you said, a professor or something who works in Great Britain. But still nothing really came of those meetings. Is that right? That's right. From what we understand right now, the intelligence agencies nor the Trump campaign gained anything from those meetings, that they were sort of casual, maybe three meetings that might have happened in Great Britain, but that there wasn't like they caught them doing something and had evidence, but they did at least try to see what would happen as a result of those meetings. And on the part of George Papadopoulos, they they kept looking into whether he knew something about the hacked Democratic emails, kind of more dirt on Hillary Clinton. That's right. So George Papadopoulos, who was a Trump advisor, he worked with the campaign and then sort of left the campaign, has been at the center of many of these accusations of collusion between the Trump campaign, or at least some type of contact between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And there were more questions asked, it would seem. This informant reached out, it would appear, to George Papadopoulos to talk to him about the campaign and about what he might be able to offer him as well. It's so interesting the way the New York Times writes it up. The informant approached Mr. Papadopoulos, said, hey, I need you to write a paper about gas fields in the Mediterranean Sea, and something that he has an expertise in. They're having dinner and drinks, and he slyly tries to bring up the DNC hack, and Papadopoulos didn't bite. But it's just 
this guy is very well seasoned, you know, for an informant to try to catch him in something. So it's it just a really interesting story out of the New York Times. Um, it does feel a little bit like a spy movie. Right, exactly. It, that, that they were characters in a script, and he went in knowing what he was going to try to get and ask for something else and, and then didn't get it all set in a in a foreign country uh, <laughs> with a backdrop of a, of a campaign at thousands of miles away. Right. Uh, it was very theatrical. <laughs> exactly. Another thing that's coming out over the weekend is Donald Trump Jr. continues to be under the microscope of uh, Robert Mueller and, and the Russia probe. The New York Times again with the scoop. They had a story about how Don Jr. in another Trump Tower meeting met with some representatives of some other countries. They wrote it up saying, you know, this is just some other evidence that other countries other than Russia might have been trying to help President Donald Trump win the election. That's correct. Donald Trump Jr. had a meeting with some emissaries of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, as well as Eric Prince, who was the founder of Blackwater, a well-known military sort of contractor in the United States. Donald Trump Jr.'s attorney confirmed that meeting to me yesterday, saying that it did happen, although he sort of disputed the New York Times claim. The New York Times said they were trying to sell them on some social media efforts. And Donald Trump Jr.'s attorney told me that instead, nothing really came of it, that it was sort of a, a useless meeting and that they walked away with, with no agreement to do any work going forward. Help us put this in perspective. It seems like Donald Trump Jr. was taking a lot of the wrong type of meetings, the previous meeting with the Russian lawyer. It just seems like he's taking the wrong meetings with the wrong people, but nothing's really coming of them. Is this really still a criminal act? I mean, how does this figure into the Mueller probe? We can look at these meetings and we can try to compare them to, say, an average run-of-the-mill campaign had it been Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush. And we know that had these types of entities reach out to them for these types of meetings, we could expect pretty accurately that they would have either declined the meetings or had anyone offered to sort of influence the outcome of the election, they would have likely told them to, to get lost. But we have here a novice, unpolitical, never worked in campaign staff, and then a son of a candidate who had also never worked in campaigns. Maybe in the most generous understanding, he didn't know that this was just not the norm of politics and that it was generally considered not okay to take these kind of meetings. His critics would say he totally knew and he didn't care uh, and he was taking the wrong kind of meetings. The legality of this is going to have to be threaded out by the Justice Department and by the Mueller investigation. And I I think we're going to see a lot of questions raised, at least in reports and on the Hill in Congress, about whether or not it was okay, the type of things that Donald Trump Jr. was doing. Ginger Gibson, reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If it's true that this is a new route to how memories are formed and stored, this is the groundwork that needs to be done for any of those therapies or treatments to work on humans. Joining us now is Usha Lee McFarling. She's a science reporter for Stat News. We're going to be talking about some new memory research from David Glansman out of UCLA, where they were able to transfer the memory from one animal to another, specifically snails. What was this experiment? What happened with this? Well, it's pretty exciting research, um, and it shakes up a lot of ideas about how the brain works. But uh, a lot of the headlines, when you hear transfer memories, you think about maybe 
someone transferring the memory of some espionage plot or, you know, your daughter's wedding into someone else's brain. This is a lot more simple than that. These snails, are, they're very powerful animals in laboratory research, and they learn to withdraw their delicate siphons and tissues if they're shocked with electricity. And what they did was they shocked some snails who then learned how to withdraw and protect themselves, took RNA from the brains of those snails, injected that into snails that had never been shocked and would not know what to do. Those never shocked snails then did the defensive learning behavior. They, They protected themselves just like the shocked snails did. So they thought they had transferred this learning and memory from one animal to another. Can you briefly explain to us what RNA is? Oh, sure. RNA is um, you know, it's a genetic material, and we all know DNA is the genetic material that contains the hereditary code you know, that makes us who we are and what traits we have, what color our eyes are. RNA is a helper molecule that helps DNA do its job of making proteins and um, executing things. The theory is that perhaps memories are encoded by changes made by RNA onto genes and rather than changes in the synapses between nerve cells, which is very radical and revolutionary. It's something that doesn't exactly come out of the blue because there was some interesting and strange research on this back in the 50s and 60s, but it's it just goes against everything you would read in any basic neuroscience textbook. So they basically, like you said, they trained the, these snails with electric shocks and they had a, a, a reaction to it when you would touch them after. They took the RNA, put it in these new untrained snails, and they reacted in the exact same way. Exactly. And as Glanson said, it's as if we transferred a memory from the brain of one animal to another. So a a lot of colleagues, a lot of people in the memory field, they're they're skeptical of what this research says, just because it goes against, as you were saying, so much of other research into memories so far. What are they saying? definitely skeptical, but Glansman has been working in this field for almost 40 years. He has a really good reputation as a scientist. So even like his harshest critics are like, but he does good work. So I, I believe the results. But they're, they're like, I'm just not sure RNA is transferring memories. They just have no idea how that would actually work. And Glansman admits he doesn't either. Glansman's work recalls to a lot of people work in the 50s and 60s by a psychologist named James McConnell, who was at Michigan. And he did these crazy experiments trying to transfer for memories between flatworms. He would actually train flatworms to navigate a certain way. Then he would grind them up and feed them to other flatworms who hadn't been trained. And the, the flatworms that ate the trained flatworms then behaved as if they had learned. So he's like, yeah, memory is being transferred. He actually called it memory RNA. And these were so shocking and crazy. No one believed it. Some people could replicate, some couldn't. And now it looks like maybe he was onto something. Maybe there are some sort of molecules, or maybe it is RNA that's transferring memory and learning, not even involving you know, neurons touching each other. It's, it's very provocative to think about. You had mentioned that previous thought on this was that memory was stored through a strengthening of synapses. Explain to us a little bit how that works. Well, the classic work was done by someone named Eric Kandel. He won a Nobel Prize in 2000 for this work, and it was on these same marine snails, the Plesia californica. And Glansman actually worked in his lab as a postdoctoral researcher, showing that if you, again, shocked the snails and taught them, uh, synaptic connections between certain neurons grew stronger with the learning. And this didn't happen in animals that didn't learn or were prevented from learning. Um, It's a very classical experiment. And I'd say 95% of neuroscientists believe that 
memories are encoded in these synaptic connections and the architecture of that. There's people that are like, well, Glanzen's results are really interesting. I think I think RNA and what they call epigenetics is part of this, but it's also synaptic strength is part of it, and perhaps communication uh, between different neurons, what they call neural networks, perhaps that's part of it. Especially in the human brain, memory and learning is so complex, it wouldn't be surprising if it was multifaceted. And the big question is, I mean, this is the the conclusion everybody jumps to, what does it mean for humans? I've read a lot of things, you know, could help people with memory disorders like dementia, Alzheimer's, PTSD, restoring memories, changing memories. Is this what we could look forward to if this pans out? Well, I think there's an inkling of that, but I, I have to say I think there's been a lot of irresponsible reporting and headlines like memories can be transferred from one person or another, or this is going to cure Alzheimer's, or you can erase like the PTSD traumatic memories of, say, like a war veteran. I mean, that's all would be wonderful if we could give people back their memories or temper the bad ones. We're a long, long way from that. But... If it's true that this is a new route to how memories are formed and stored, this is the groundwork that needs to be done for any of those therapies or treatments to work on humans. Some people will say, oh, well, this is just in snails, but many, many of the things that have been discovered in the neural systems of snails are exactly the same in humans, you know, at the cellular level. We just have a lot more neurons and a lot bigger brain. I think the fact that it's in snails is not is not an issue. I just think the fact that it's very preliminary and early. It's first paper and only one person has found this. That means we're a long way from like any actual drug treatments. Right. And then for advanced as we are and how long we've been looking into this stuff, you know, it really proves we still don't know very much about the brain and memory and our own bodies in a sense. Yeah, it's very humbling, I think. Great. Usha Lee McFarling, she's a science reporter for Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us some comments and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.